0: At my first call, Zion in Hartford City, Indiana, many members of the congregation were descended from the founders, the people who had signed the first constitution over 150 years before. They'd emigrated from Germany or the Alsace Lorraine region of France in the late 19th century, some to escape conscription by the Kaiser, others for economic opportunity. And they were very proud of their heritage. Some were fourth or fifth generation members of the congregation with glorious memories of their ancestors. Indeed, they were so closely knit that they would often joke, remember pastor, you can't say anything bad about any of us because we're all related. (laughs) It's a bit different at Shalom. Shalom is a young congregation, only 41 years old. A few of our first-generation members are still with us. Some are here today. And unlike Zion, made up of German Lutherans who formed one congregation, Shalom has Swedes, Norwegians, Germans, all kinds of people, and uh, many of whom came from other Lutheran congregations. Since the early days of European settlement, there's been more than one Lutheran church to choose from in Douglas County. In Alexandria, and I tried to count today, I might not have gotten them all, within the city limits there are eight Lutheran congregations. Within city, just the city limits, and then if you go outside the city limits, there are quite a few more out in the country. You can't spit without hitting a Lutheran pastor <laughs> around here. Jesus, of course, has a different community in mind, a community that knows no boundary between Swedish and Norwegian or ELCA in Missouri Synod. And in Jesus' community, there are no second-generation members. There are only those who receive God's gift of grace anew in every generation. But what a strange grace this is. Immediately prior to this sermon, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus has embarked on a preaching and healing tour of Galilee. On that tour, all kinds of people are brought to him for healing. Those afflicted by various diseases or pains, people possessed by demons or having epilepsy, or afflicted with paralysis. When Jesus begins his sermon, he declares, surprisingly, that these kinds of people are favored in the heavenly kingdom. You see, the poor in spirit are more than the physically poor. They certainly may be that, and usually are that. But they are also those who are poor in other ways, poor in health, poor in will, poor in hope. These are folks who have run out of options. They have no one else to rely on but God. And yet these poor ones are prominent citizens in the heavenly kingdom. We should note this, Jesus doesn't prescribe anything for society here. Jesus doesn't tell anyone to be poor in spirit. Jesus simply declares that the people who are, the same kind of people he just healed, to be blessed. The rest of the Beatitudes follow the same logic. Every group of people Jesus declares blessed, the world has thought cursed. Those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, those who hunger for justice, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, all of these are often dismissed by the world. Such people, after all, are buzzkills, or weak, or pathetic, or impractical. After all, as the devil knows, real power comes from control control of food, control of distraction control of the halls of power, as we heard last week. These kinds of people that Jesus claims to be blessed are often the world's castoffs. They're four more likely to languish in a slum or die young than rise to any position of prominence. Yet these are the people that Jesus will build his new community around. This Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of of a new community, an alternative community, a community that cares little about what the real world thinks because it knows that the so-called real world is little more than smoke and shadow compared with God's kingdom among us. Nation-states fall, corporations crumble, leaders die. But Christ's community, Christ's church, will stand forever. It will stand because this community has Christ at its center. This community knows its mission, to bring shalom to a broken, hurting world. In this new community, power isn't centered around control. Power is centered around the love of Christ, who saves us and makes us one. Of course, being sinners, we often forget this. We are easily seduced into seeing things the way the devil sees them. That's the practical way, after all. It's easy to see God working in the strong and powerful of the world, and overlook. And easy also to overlook the powerful ways God works within and among those we think are weak, impractical, or even foolish. It's easy to ally ourselves with the strong forces of the culture, Hoping to use that strength for the church. So often one hears the call to cultural power couched in warlike terms. We got to take this country back for Christ and good Christian families. Ever hear that before? The problem is that this rhetoric uses the devil's logic of control control of people, control of the means of power. There's very little love in such calls. But there is good news. We are freed as people of Christ from striving for cultural prominence and prestige. That doesn't have to be our problem. Jesus has not called his church for that purpose. Rather Jesus calls us to be salt and light in a world grown tasteless and dim. The beloved community that Jesus describes in the sermon brings seasoning to the world. It brings illumination, reflecting the light of Christ. And Christ's light is the light of God's self-giving love for our world. God loves God's creation so much that God stays with it. God does not abandon the creation. God does not leave us to our own devices. God sends teachers, God sends prophets, God sends messengers to call us back to God's way to live out God's dream. About 1,300 years before Christ, God's servant Moses went up the mountain to receive God's law. This law wasn't about control, certainly not after the manner of Pharaoh. This law was about freedom. How should a free people live? How do free people avoid tyranny? The Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, are the answer to those questions. A free people remembers that God is God. That nothing comes before the worship and the love of God. Such people offer a refreshing alternative to politics as usual. To control and to domination. Beloved people of God, such a call to freedom is given to us again and again when we gather to hear the word of God and receive that same word made flesh in communion. Here we remember that we are called to so much more than dominance and control. We're called for love. We're called for freedom. We're called for shalom. And we fall, of course. The story of God's people, Israel, is one of failure. And the story of the church is often one of failure, too. We get stuck on our own influence, our own relevance. We look for God in all the wrong places. Yet God in Christ does not abandon us, but comes to us again and again opening our eyes to see his work among the least of these. Such happens today. We're refreshed, restored, and renewed to be God's alternative countercultural community. People who are merciful. People who are meek. People who hunger for justice. People who make peace. We're salt and light. We're called to love and shalom for a world desperate for light and seasoning. Thanks be to God. Amen.